Well, good morning again, ZPC, on this uh, beautiful, uh, lightly snowing Sunday. It's a beautiful day out today, and it is good to be here with you. And again, thank you for those who are joining us live streaming this morning. It's good to have you all here with us as well. Uh, sisters and brothers, it's been a little while since I have uh, been up here to preach, so I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Scott and to Pastor Stan and to Elia, who uh, preached over the last three Sundays. It was great to be able to learn from them, and so thank you. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about having opportunities like that for me is both that I get to sit and get to hear and listen and get someone else's perspective on a particular scripture passage, uh, and then it's also uh, given me a great opportunity just to kind of think through this next sermon series and these next uh, several weeks um, as we kind of begin to go through the Gospels. It'll take us a few months to go through the Gospels during this, um, during this new sermon series before we kind of get on to Acts and then to the Epistles. But we are, as uh, Pastor Scott and as Amy have already said, we're very excited about this new uh, this new series, I've been able to hear from several folks who have talked about how excited they are um, and have already begun to read. In fact, uh, one I just heard from this week already is, is reading, they're reading it out loud to their whole family and so uh, with their four little ones. And so uh, what a great opportunity. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a few minutes. Well, you should have done your reading for this week. And if you did so, uh, then you will know that we are going to look at something in those first few chapters of Matthew. And so today we decided we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 23. And this is what Matthew writes. He says this, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning, and we pray for your Spirit to be with us even now. As we begin this series, Lord, looking over all of the New Testament, we pray that you would speak words of grace and truth, that you would help us as we enter into these writings from thousands of years ago to begin to see how that same Spirit continues to work today. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts 
will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, I think it's good uh, as we kind of kick off this series of going through the New Testament to talk about a passage like Matthew 4 that is obviously a passage about discipleship. Because in many ways, of course, reading the New Testament is about discipleship. One of the characteristics of a disciple uh, is someone who reads Scripture. And one of the ways that we understand what it means to be a disciple is to read Scripture. You don't really know what it means to be a disciple if we don't know the Scripture. And so it seems appropriate then that today we are beginning to look at this particular passage as the kickoff for this next year. And so what do we see going on in this particular passage? Well, it begins, of course, with Jesus. Jesus has just been baptized uh, by John the Baptist. He's kind of uh, gone through the temptations of Satan, and he's done that successfully, of course. And now he is told that John the Baptist has been arrested. And so Matthew tells us he withdrew to Galilee. Now, you should know that's no small withdrawal. That's almost 80 miles away, right? No small feat back in that day when the donkey, they clocked it, was typically two to three miles an hour. It's a long time to go 80 miles. I actually just made that up. I have no idea how fast a donkey goes, but it's not very fast, right? And so there they are, and he's withdrawn to Galilee. Now, why would he have gone so far away? There's probably a lot of different reasons why he would have done so. Uh, For one, um, you know, Jesus, and this is one of the things that we can pay attention to in the Gospels, is that Jesus was pretty shrewd, and and he knew uh, that if his message got out too clearly, he always knew that there was a danger to his life, and he also knew that he needed to have time to establish his ministry, and there was a lot of heat going on right now in the area where he was, obviously, with John the Baptist being arrested, and so he wanted to get away from some of that heat. We'll see Jesus do that. Um, You see it sometimes when he speaks uh, he, he speaks with, uh, you know, not, not clearly all of the time. He's, he's very shrewd in the words that he uses so that they can't quite pin him down. The Pharisees or the Roman leaders, you know, he's very clandestine in that way. Uh, you'll remember perhaps a scene even when a mob is going to kill him, and then it's like as if all of a sudden he just disappears, right? Jesus knew, obviously, that he wasn't going to be there uh, for a long time, but he at least needed to be there enough for enough time to establish his ministry, He also, it's been pointed out, goes to Galilee because of the fact that in many ways this is, um, um, well, there's a lot more Gentiles there, as you see here, and so it's a a little bit of a tip-off to what's going to be coming, especially with the church and this kind of new uh, reaching out into the Gentile world. But Galilee was also kind of a, a backwaters kind of place, right? It was no political, religious social uh, or fashion hub at all, right? It was kind of the middle of nowhere. And as Scott Hosey points out, it's this clear sign that there was no insignificant place when it comes to Jesus. And one of the things that we also want to pay attention to over the next few months in the Gospels is seeing how there is also no insignificant people for Jesus. People or Jesus is always seeing people whom no one else sees. Jesus is always talking to those that no one else will talk with. He's always eating with those that no one else will eat with. He's always touching, literally and figuratively, those that nobody else will touch. This is who Jesus is. But now there's another part of this that's also significant, which is that Matthew, and it's always important to pay attention to words when you're reading Scripture, Matthew could have easily just said that Jesus went to Galilee. But he didn't. 
he says that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And I checked with our Greek scholar, Stan Johnson, and he said, yeah, no, that's definitely very different than just going. There is a sense of retreat. There is a sense of needing to get away, needing to create some space from the tumult and from the melee that was all around him. And so I want us to pay attention over the next few months to how frequently Jesus gets away. Whenever things, whenever the pressure is getting high, whenever there's a lot of people clamoring, Jesus continually gets away. He creates space in order to be with his Father, in order to pray, in order to do what we've talked about, which is, you know, to meditate, to, to create that space, to simply get away. I think that's really important, especially right now in the lives of the church. I got to tell you that when I see Christians who are just as angry or just as vitriolic or just as anxiety-induced or just as fearful as their non-Christian neighbors, it makes it very clear to me that they are not creating enough space between them and the society around them. In other words, they are not creating times when they are getting away. Here's what I want to tell you. I've told you this before, but it seems like it's very difficult for us to learn this lesson, which is that when you are surrounded all the time by only social media, by only news, by only emails that you have been forwarded to you, by only the radio, by only the television, when you constantly surround yourself with those things, you will inevitably begin to think that that is all there is. Let me say it again in case we didn't hear it. When you are constantly surrounding yourself with all of the anxiety and the fear, and when you are constantly surrounding yourself with people that say, this is it, it's all over, you will inevitably begin to believe it. You will inevitably, be, inevitably begin to believe this is all that there is. We must as followers of Jesus, actually follow Jesus. And where was Jesus always going? Into places where he needed to be alone. It's not that we distance ourselves from the society around us for all times. Clearly not. Jesus did not do that. But if you are not creating space to remember that God is God, if we are not creating space to remember who Jesus is and that he is in control, then you will look much less like Jesus and much more like everyone else. People online said amen. There we go. I know they did because somebody, my mother, I heard her say it. So then Jesus, after having this withdrawal, after withdrawing, then he's in Galilee. And what does he begin to do? He begins to call his disciples. Right? He goes out and he sees uh, Simon. Uh, he sees Andrew. And what does he say? He says, hey, follow me. And they followed him immediately. Then he goes and he sees the uh, sons of Zebedee, which, by the way, I, if I ever had a son, I think we were going to call him Zebedee because I love that name, Zebedee. And so he says he sees the sons of Zebedee, right? John and James. And what does he say? He says, follow me. And immediately, we're told, they follow him. Now, this is a really fascinating scene that we could talk about for quite a while, but I just want to point out two main things about this particular part of the story. First is this, and this is really, I mean, this is important, which is that Jesus is the one who initiates the relationship with those disciples. Hey, remember this, that it is always God who moves 
first. It is always God who initiates first. I mean, think about it. First and foremost, of course, you have in, in flesh and bone God and Jesus coming down to the earth in order to be closer to us, to be physically right there. But then, once he is on the earth, Jesus then goes out and seeks after the disciples. Now, that's very countercultural in that time and place. The rabbis, what they did, they didn't go out looking for disciples. No, 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 no. Disciples, hopeful followers, would find the rabbi and they would say, hey, can we follow you? But Jesus turns that upside down and he says, no, I'm not going to wait for you to come to me. I am actually going to go and I am going to find you. Jesus moves first. God comes first. He goes out and he intentionally finds those guys who were doing their own business and he says, I want you to follow me. And now here's the other important thing to see is that he wants them to follow them him immediately. Do you notice what he did not say? Jesus did not say, hey, Simon, Andrew, how you doing? I'd love for you to follow me. Now, first, I really need you to get that stink off. So I need you to go shower up. The fish smell does not sit well with my stomach. And then once you're really smelling good, once you've got on some new duds, then come and follow me. He just says, follow me. He doesn't say, okay, hey, look, guys, it's so good to see you. Uh, you know, John and James, you guys look great. But you know what? You know, sometimes looks can be deceiving. So let's talk a little bit. You know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, can you tell me a little bit about your past? What's the thing you're most embarrassed about? I just got to do a quick little background check on you guys first, and then you can come follow me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, okay, let's gather around. All right, I want to hear, what are some of the gifts and talents that you have? Because you know what? There's only a few that I can really use. And so I want to make sure before you kind of come and begin to follow me, I want to, I want to make sure that you guys are in the right place, that you, that you don't have anything too kind of, you know, uh, um, um, too uh, bad. I don't know. That's a great word, right? A great adjective, just bad uh, in your background. There's nothing that's going to embarrass me. There's, you know, there's nothing that, there's nothing you're going to mess up. And, and then you can follow me. No, no, no. As Audrey West says, he he simply says, follow me. Now look, this is a message. I didn't go back to count, but probably during my uh, time here, I've preached probably close to 100 times, I would imagine. And it's a simple message that God moves first. That God gives grace first. And the reason why I'm always repeating that same message is because of the simple fact that A, it is foundational to our faith, especially in a Reformed tradition like the Presbyterian Church, that it is grace first. And secondly, because it is so absolutely countercultural. It's not the way our world works. And thirdly, while we're at it, it's something that doesn't come naturally for the vast majority of us. One of the things that I know about ZPCers, may not be the case for all of us, but it's the case for many of us, is that we love achievement. 
We love accomplishing things. We love a good goal. Most of us, my guess is, I haven't asked what your GPA is, but if I went around, I'm going to guess that most of us did pretty decent in school. Most of us have done pretty good in the, in the workforce, if you will. We love a good goal. We love to see things up on a board that we can say, there's the goal. We're going to reach for that. We're going to grab that. And we really like it when it means that we get to beat somebody else to get there, right? I mean, that's just the cherry on top. We love those kind of goals. We love that achievement. We know that we, we love that we're a accomplishing something. There's just something to that, right? We, we, we love that. It's something that we applaud. It's something that we applaud within ourselves even. I was thinking about that because several weeks ago I read this quote by Will Smith, the actor Will Smith. I think he made it uh, several years ago now, but I had not seen it before. And he was talking about uh, what is it, Will Smith, that kind of sets you apart, you know? What, what is it that makes you a little bit different? And, and here's what Will Smith said. He said this. He said, the only thing I see that is distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. You might have more talent than me. You might be smarter than me. But if we get on a treadmill together, there are two things that are going to happen. One, you're getting off first. Or two, I'm going to die. It's really that simple. That is a great quote. In other words, Look, you may be better than me, you may be better looking, you may be smarter, you may be wealthier, whatever, man. But if it's a competition and I know that it's me against you, I would rather die than lose to you. I love that, right? I was thinking about that because uh, a few months ago I joined this, this, uh, this new gym and uh, I've been there for a couple of weeks when I realized that they had this competition. It's a 1,200-meter row competition, and I thought, oh, that's great. And if you're in the top five, um, you get your name put on this whiteboard. Now, let me be very clear. The whiteboard is literally about this big, okay? Someone just writes the name. But I saw those five guys' names, and I said, all right, I see you, Jim. I'm coming for you. Sure enough, I got on that rower, man, and I was just humming. I was like, oh. I mean, it was as if the world was going to be on fire if I didn't just crank this thing up. And you know what? When I got done, guess what? Jim was number two. That's right. I crushed him. I was so excited. It was amazing. You guys thought I was going to say I got number six. No, no, no. I had beat him. Thank you, John, for being excited for me. I was so excited, right? In fact, I was so excited that I, I got up afterwards. I could barely breathe, barely move, but I got up, but it was worth it. And so I got up and I watched them erase his name. Sorry, Jim. And put my name up. I even took a picture of it. I mean, how pathetic is this, first of all, for a 46-year-old? But then, of course, about two days later, I went back in. Some guy named Dan beat me by like 14 seconds. It was like he was doing it with one hand. Easy peasy. And my blood was boiling, right? And then a few days later, I went back there again, and there went my name down one more so that I was in third place. And it is only a matter of time. I know it. Now, I didn't take pictures of any of those other names. I can assure you of that. But it was absolutely, and it just crushes me, right? So that now when I go in there, I mean, I am just, I've got to get up there somehow. I have got to win because there is this goal because I want to get my name on this whiteboard that is this big and that maybe 30 people will ever see. How embarrassing is that? But something tells me that I am not alone at ZPC and somebody who says, ooh, achievement, goal, and you, may, and you get to beat somebody. Now listen to me. Those kinds of things, that mentality works fine in the workforce. It works fine in the gym. But it does not work in relationships, and it certainly does not work with our faith. 
Because here's the thing, and this is something that many of us get into, myself included, which is that if you have that same mentality when it comes to your relationship with Jesus and to your faith, then you are going to constantly be trying to earn. You're going to be constantly trying to row, constantly churning in the hopes that God will notice. Hey, you see my name up there on the board, God? Do you see that? In the hopes that God is going to love you. But here's the thing. You will always be failing. Your name will continually drop it off because if what we are looking for is to do just enough works or to be just perfect enough, it will never happen. It will be like me setting up a rower next to Olympic athlete. It will never occur. You will never win. You will always be wanting. You will always come up short. There is no peace. There is no grace in a faith that says, I must work harder than those around me so that God notices, so that I will be okay and be loved. God's grace comes first. And so when we are looking at Scripture over this next year, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you to look first through this lens. Typically what we look through, the lens through which we look is, what are you wanting me to do, God? What do you want me to do? How can I do something? Tell me what to do. But the first question to ask is show me, God, what you have done. Well, before we get to the question of what must I do, we need to ask the question, what has God already done? Because if you flip those questions, you will perennially be on a rower and you will never feel the peace and the rest of Jesus Christ. It begins with grace. Then, of course, as we have the freedom from having to believe that we have to achieve that love, that we have to do just enough to gain God's attention, when we finally have freedom from that, and what amazing freedom that is, then and only then are we free too. Then we are free to begin to follow Jesus with almost reckless abandon. Then we are free to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Then we are free to follow Jesus even when there is danger that we must encounter. Now I used that word danger last week before the prayer and I think it's an important Word. I don't necessarily mean danger from our physical lives, though certainly there are those and continue to be those today who lose their physical lives because they are following Jesus. But what I also mean is this, that when you begin to follow Jesus after you have received the grace and love of Jesus, when you then begin to follow him, we need to rest assured so that this is not a bait and switch, that every part of you inside of you, there is a danger to it, to those things that you want to do, to those things that you treasure, to those priorities that you have, even to the relationships that you are in. When you begin to experience the grace of Jesus, you then have the freedom as you follow him to ask 
all right, Lord, what do I need to give up in order to follow you even further in this journey? Did you notice that in the way that Matthew describes the scene? Again, as you're reading the New Testament, pay attention to how the writers are describing things. Did you notice what he says? He sees Andrew and he sees Simon and he calls them. He says, follow me. And did you notice it doesn't just say that they followed him immediately. Does anyone remember what it says right before this, that they blank and then followed him immediately? Yes, someone at home said it. They left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. What are the nets? The nets are what made them safe. The nets are what gave them a sense of identity. The nets are what gave them a sense of purpose. The nets are what gave them a secure, their security. The nets were their jobs. The nets were, this is who I am. And it says that they left those things in order to follow Jesus. Here is the truth that when you begin to follow Jesus, after you have received that an invitation, after you have received that grace, as you follow, both at the beginning, but then what you will notice is the longer you go, I can't walk towards you, but just act like I am, the further you go, the more nets you will begin to drop. The more of your priorities you will begin to drop. The more of your own identity you will begin to drop. The more that you follow Jesus, the more nets you will see because the more danger that the Lord is all of a sudden going to reveal. No, this is taking the place of me. You need to drop that treasure. You need to drop that value. You need to drop that purpose right there. The more that you follow Jesus, the more nets you will drop, right? And, and not only that, of course, we see it also with John and James. Did you notice? Because you got to notice these things when you're reading the scripture. It's what, it's what makes it come alive. That he doesn't just say, oh, and he, 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 he invites James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to follow. And they left immediately and followed him. Nope. It's not what it says. They left their boats and they left their father. Right? They left their boats and their father. I love the scene. To me, it's a comedic scene. Can you imagine if you're Zebedee? And you're just sitting there on the boat and you're just mending the nets with the boys and, <laughs> and some random guy just comes over and is like, follow me. And all of a sudden, they just walk out. Can you imagine, right? Guys? Guys? Gone. Right? And it's fascinating because what I find, it's very interesting to see what people write about and what you find yourself drawn to. One of the big questions that's always asked about this particular scene is, well, why would they go immediately? Why do these people go immediately? This is very interesting. I wonder what happened. Maybe they had already talked to Jesus at some point down the road or earlier, or maybe they'd read the Galilean Gazette. And so they already knew his old theology and realized, I want to follow that guy. If he happens along the way someday, I'm going to follow him. Or, or maybe as one commentator says, this is really the first miracle in, the, in, the, in all the Bible, right? Or for, in the New Testament, which is that, you know, that they just happen to go immediately. And we find ourselves getting distracted by that. I, it's a fine question, but it's, a, it's kind of a, it's, it's inconsequential. Sometimes we get distracted by inconsequential questions because we don't want to face the real question. The real question is this, what nets, what boat, what relationship might we need to leave in order for us to really keep following and get further along with Jesus? 
Where is Jesus' grace kind of causing, shining this light within me that says that, hey, we should probably leave some of this behind if we really want to travel more lightly and begin to be shaped more and more like the Messiah. So you see, we have this incredibly beautiful tension then in this particular story, just as we do throughout all of the New Testament. It is this tension that goes first, grace. And as you're reading the stories, as you're reading these things, what's the question you keep asking? The first question is this, what has God done? What is God doing? And only after you've asked that question do you then say, now what am I called to do? And see, this is this tension that we will see throughout the New Testament. And so as I was trying to think through, what do we call this sermon series? I thought, well, we need to, you need to use both of those sides because I think it's important. And so I, I thought about the word dangerous, right? Because I like that dangerous. I like that sense of, of just this notion that when we follow Jesus, there's a danger to our lives in this, to our priorities, our values, all those things. But of course, I also love the word grace, and so I thought, well, we can call it dangerous grace, I guess. All right, it's, it's got something to do. We'll just call it that. But, but I was really annoyed by that wording. And I realized this is the first time I think I've ever said this. I, I wish that we were a Spanish-speaking church. Right? Now, I took several years of Spanish. I can remember about three words, I think. I'm not very good at it. But what I do remember, this is the weird thing, I remember this random story that my Spanish teacher told me decades ago now. I don't know why I remember this, but she was in San Francisco and she was doing, getting a tour by a tour guide. And she said, I knew that the tour guide was a native Spanish speaker. So we said, well, how did you know that? Well, because every time that she was talking about the gold rush, she would always say, oh, and then the rush gold. And she would always, she, 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 she mixed up the word order. She would always say rush gold. Why? Because in Spanish, that's how you would say it. You would switch those two words. And as I thought about it, I said, oh, I love that. And I realized that if we were going to do this in Spanish, we could say gracia peregrosa, which means gracia means grace, peregrosa means danger. And so I thought, well, we could just do it for the whole year. We'd have a Spanish title. And that would be great for like the six or seven of us here who speak Spanish. And by us, I don't mean me. But then I thought, well, that's going to be kind of annoying. But I was not content to call it dangerous grace because I don't like it. I think word ordering is important. So here's what we're calling the sermon series. It's going to be called Grace Dangerous. And I know it's annoying. It annoys me. But here's what I want you to know. My hope is that actually you will get so annoyed by that title that it will cause you to stumble every time you hear it. Every Sunday when we come up and it pops up on the screen and it says grace dangerous, it will remind you, oh, I wonder this week if I have begun by asking the question, what has God done? Not I asking the question, what now must I do? Grace dangerous. Now I want to make a deal with you all. Both of us play a part in this deal because that's what a deal does. Let me start with your end of the deal. It has uh, like two or three parts, okay? It's much longer than mine. Your end of the deal is this. First of all, that you will commit to reading the New Testament this 
year. I mean, Pastor Scott's already made it very clear that it's about 20 minutes a week. Isn't that what you said last week? 20 minutes. That is less than three minutes a day. It's almost embarrassing what we're asking. To read the New Testament, to be committed to reading it. If you forget to read it for a week, that's fine. Go back. You can find 20 minutes, I promise you. If you can't, then you have bigger issues. To read it then through the lens of saying grace first, through that particular lens, God, what have you done? How can I be thankful to you for what you've done? Because then when you begin like that, it makes you less defensive. Because what I've discovered is this, is that the longer that you go on this journey, when you begin with that sense of grace, then yes, you will have to begin to give some things up. You will have to change priorities. You will have to change values. You will have to change possessions. But what happens is when you begin with grace, you begin to want to do those things so that even when they are costly, even if it's not easy, there is a part of you when you begin with grace that says, God, I want to be closer to the kind of God that you are. I want to look more like you. My end of the deal is this. I'm going to do my best when I preach on these passages to try and not soften the edges too much. To try and not act like I have it all figured out. To try and not relieve the tension that is so often in Scripture. Now, this is hard. I mean, in the next few weeks, in two weeks, we're going to be uh, talking about a passage uh, where, um, where Jesus calls a woman a dog. That's, that's an uncomfortable passage. I'm not sure I've actually ever preached on that particular passage. You know why? I'm not entirely sure how to make it look good. Or there's the, the passage, of course, where he, he, he um, later on that we'll look at with Jesus and the rich man, where he tells him to sell everything that you have. And one of the things that you notice, of course, is that whenever pastors preach on that, they usually have about a thousand caveats. And they're usually always like this. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is necessarily calling you to do that. It doesn't mean, let's be very clear. Now, why do we do that? Because we actually want some people to come back the next week. Now look, could it very possibly mean that we aren't all called to sell everything? Sure. But I got to think that there are probably some people for whom maybe Jesus is asking that. And I got to know that Jesus wants us to disrupt that, that story, to disrupt and make us a little bit afraid. I was kind of thinking about it. It's a little bit like the princess and the, and the pea. I'm sorry, this is, you know, I've got four daughters, so these are the stories that we think through. And you remember that story, right? You remember that little pea that was underneath her mattress and she just couldn't sleep because it was just kind of agitating her? You see, I think Scripture is actually supposed to be like that a little bit. And sometimes we as pastors, we kind of package everything up so nicely that there's no pea anymore. It's just the mattress. You just snuggle up, get some good sleep. And I think that probably Scripture is actually supposed to agitate us a little bit more than what it does. And so I'm going to preach, and I'm going to say some things, and I'm going to say even at times, you know what, I'm not entirely sure what to do with this. But here's what I know. It should bother us, and I'm going to leave it there and just see what you guys think about it. And if you don't come back the next week, I'll miss you.
So are we going to do it? We up for this? Over this next year, slowly but surely make our way through the New Testament. To do so through the lens of grace first. To discover for the first time or for the 70th time the unfathomable and beautiful grace of Jesus Christ. And then are we going to allow that same light to then begin to pour deep inside of us so that Jesus might reveal those nets that he longs for us to leave behind as we follow him. Grace, dangerous. Amen? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to follow you. It is not an easy journey, but it is one that you have already made the first move toward us, and for that we give you praise. So I pray first and foremost, Lord, that you would help us in this year to soak in your grace, to soak in the way that you have reached out to us. And after so doing, may we then continue to ask the question, What are we called to leave behind? That we might truly repent. It means simply to turn and to follow you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.